Are you ready to free the body and free the soul? Join Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, as he guides us on today's journey. Here's Dr. David. Welcome, friends. Welcome to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the Cutting Edge Doc, and here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in-depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing and or spirituality and or social transformation. And I'm very excited about today's show. My guest, who I'll bring on in a moment, is Dr. Duke Pesta, and he's given me permission to call him Duke for the interview. And I'm very excited about today's show because today is all about education and uh, demonstrating a way that works better, a way that is less expensive, a way that involves the family more, a way that respects the inherent nature of human beings and spirit. And uh, many of you know that education and teaching and young people is very dear to my heart. I consider myself a teacher and a student at heart. And I'm always interested and on the lookout for clear thinking people who have a big heart that have the energy and the commitment to actually demonstrate a way that works better. You know, there's so many people that are on the sidelines critiquing things all the time, but they never get in the arena. They never get their feet wet. And uh, so I have a lot of respect for someone who both is clear thinking and warm hearted and also willing to take a stand and take action. And so out of that, I crossed paths with the work of Duke, of Dr. Pesta, and um, felt really um, intuitively drawn to connect with Duke, and he was kind enough to respond. So welcome, Duke, to Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. Thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate the work you do, and I'm glad to be with you. Okay. So um, just a couple of things to create a little space to have the most impactful conversation that's possible before I turn it over to you and give you a chance to tell your story that will kind of bring the listeners into a connection with you and up to speed about where we are now. But uh, I'd like to make a few opening comments. So any person who is committed to truth will see that the uh, public education system in the United States is severely broken. Uh, students are not thinking or reading or writing clearly. Their sense of morality and ethics is they have a very difficult time finding true north. They have a difficult time finding adult role models that inspire them. Um, throwing more money at the problem isn't working, etc. So that's obvious. And a lot of people have all sorts of ideas about what's causing this and what we can do about it. But hardly anybody, in my opinion, is thinking powerfully enough about this to see clearly enough to really um, break open into any kind of new level of workability. And uh, so... I know, Duke, that from what I've read about you, that one of the things that kind of catalyzed you to get involved in uh, creating a pilot pro demonstration project of what can work better is the fact that 
you not only had these thoughts, but you were a university professor and you were actually having a direct experience year after year uh, in your interaction with incoming students that was demonstrating this reduced level of competence and engagement. And, uh, you know, many people would have just uh, gone into a mood of resignation or whatever, or quit, or, and you didn't. And so I really respect that. And so uh, in a minute, I want to turn it over to you. I want to give you a chance to respond to anything I said and to start to tell your story. And then also one other thing is an opening comment is, uh, you know, we all have our, our personhood, we all have our preferences, we all have our biases with regard to religion and with regard to politics and other highly charged matters. And I'm no exception and Duke is no exception. And uh, I wanna create a space where, where, it, where Duke can mention anything he wants to say about that. And at the same time, to open up the conversation in such a way that people of any religious or atheistic persuasion or people of any political bent will not get hung up on any particular religious or political biases or preferences so that they can listen at a deeper level to the universality and principles that we're getting at. So with that as some opening keynote thoughts, I just want to turn it over for a while to you, Duke, to give you a chance to share whatever you'd like to share and then to tell your personal story that kinds of bring that will kind of bring us up to present time. Well, I appreciate the introduction and I very much um, admire your pluralistic approach. Um, I think that's right. We have better conversations when uh, we all focus on what we have in common rather than what divides us. Um, I, am a, I am still a university professor. That's my primary avocation. I've been a professor for about 25 years now. That includes my time in graduate school in the early 1990s. Uh, and I've been teaching university kids for about 25 years. And it is true that um, I'm, I'm a first generation, uh, my, my, I'm the first person in my family to graduate from college, to even attend college. And as often happens with children of immigrants, and my, all four of my grandparents were um, Italian immigrants to this country. Um, what always, oftentimes happens with the first person in the family to go to college, they get enamored of higher education, they get enamored of, um, of the give and play of ideas, and they often go all the way I did uh, through my master's degree to the PhD. And that's sort of what my, my joy was. I, I, I thought that in entering higher education, I thought I was going to genuinely enter a place where you could talk about anything, where you could swap ideas, you could argue about the validity of one idea over another, uh, that you had a kind of sacrosanct freedom of speech to be able to challenge your students, uh, even with unpopular ideas, to, to make them think critically. And the tragedy is, and it's been this way for over 25 years now, the tragedy is, is that higher ed is none of those things. Uh, that American higher education is monolithic, it's uh, uh, univocal in terms of its politics, it is not welcoming or encouraging of ideas, perspectives, philosophies, ideologies uh, that, that challenge the status quo. And so consequently, our kids are getting uh, really ripped off, I think, in terms of all the money they're spending on this education and how little time we are actually devoting uh, to what's in their best interest, what's in their best welfare, an accurate history, uh, complicated thinking re regimens, uh, or uh, heterodoxy in terms of, of worldview, in terms of what can and can't be said, 
it's getting worse now, obviously, with these safe spaces and all of the shutting down of any dissenting voices or speech, uh, the, the relegating of freedom of speech and thought uh, to certain parts of campus or banishing from, cam from campus altogether in the names of political orthodoxy. Uh, and so it is a bad situation. American education, particularly at the highest level, is terribly overpriced. It's terribly ineffective, highly, highly politicized. And it really does work against, historically, what the premise of higher education should be. Uh, so it's very broken. And uh, I wanted to fix this. I knew uh, that by the time a 19-year-old gets to me in college, uh, already they have had so much of their free inquiry, so much of their spirit beaten down uh, by a conformist mindset that by the time they get to me in college, uh, it's really hard to change that. It's very difficult to try to open their eyes to alternatives. And of course, most university professors don't try to do that anyway. They, they take the, how the kids have been politicized and they magnify that. Uh, they, oftentimes our universities go much farther than our high schools and middle schools in shutting down dissent and voiceless and making kids voiceless. Uh, so I wanted to fight that. I knew I was going to have to get involved in education at lower levels to try to get at the kids before, um, before they got to college. And a lot of that is why I got involved with Freedom Project, which is a, uh, something we can talk about later. It's, it's my second career, if you will. Besides being a university professor, I'm a, the academic director of, of an online school from kindergarten through high school, which tries to provide kids um, everything that uh, traditional education seems to be lacking, uh, basically classical education, uh, philosophical open-mindedness, the willingness to think critically, uh, presenting them with subjects like economics and logic uh, to, to, co to complement what they otherwise would get in schools, public schools, as a way of trying to make them more well-rounded, give them a fighting chance once they get to college of deciding what, let, rather than having professors and curriculum decide what they're going to be, let them decide uh, and give them the courage and the confidence in those places where they disagree or oppose uh, the dominant ideologies on college campuses, to be able to stand up uh, and not worry about grades, not worry about um, uh, peer pressure, and not worry about the pressure of the classroom and their professors, uh, but stay, hold true to who and what they are uh, in the hopes that when they graduate, they'll be able to bring those different perspectives into the work, the family life, workplace, spiritual life uh, as a way of, of genuinely restoring America to the freest, what used to be the freest ideological, intellectual, uh, uh, cultural, monetary place in the history of the world. We want to get that back. Uh, everybody benefits when uh, you have genuine plural, plural, uh, pluralism, uh, not this kind of watered down, ideologically correct multiculturalism that seems to have replaced that. Duke, for some reason, your volume is going up and down quite a bit. I don't know where you have your microphone, but like sometimes you'll be quite loud and sometimes you'll be a little muted. So I don't know if there's a way to, to make the microphone a little more stationary in relation to your mouth. Sure. First of all, can you hear me okay right now? Yes. Okay, I think it's because I'm bobbing my head around a lot when I'm talking. I get kind of animated. It's the Italian in me wants to talk with my hands and my head. So it's just a matter of me sitting more still, and I will certainly do that. Okay, so I didn't mean to break your train of thought, but I did want to bring that up. Nope, and I think I made my initial comment uh, happy with that, if you could hear it okay, and okay. ready to, to talk further. Okay, so let's, before we start talking about solutions, Let's take a little deeper dive into the structure of the problem and some of the 
processes and forces that are in place that reflect and perpetuate that. So I made a couple of notes before we started here about things where we could start to get into it. I'll mention a few and you can dive in anywhere you'd like to get started, okay? Sure. So I made some notes about common core, standardization of testing, uh, teaching to the test, um, what is the unspoken bias behind the material they choose to focus on and the material they choose not to focus on, and is there any valid way to assess um, whether even if someone was really good at learning what they want you to learn, if there is any relevance or validity that that correlates any, in any way, shape, or form to um, what philosophers would have historically called the good life. And there's a whole bunch of really good questions there. And uh, I think if we break them up a little bit, uh, one at a time, we'll have a better chance. Right. I certainly will have a better chance of remembering them all. Um, my initial comment is everything you said is right. And that there is a huge disconnect, I believe, between um, the way we used to educate people philosophically, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally, and the way we're doing it now. Um, I think that in a word, and we could use this as a starting point for those other questions if you like, in a word, I think that we, uh, education in general has become utilitarian and pragmatic, uh, something that it was never meant to be. Obviously, from a pragmatic utilitarian sense, we want our kids to be able to read, to write, to be able to work numbers at a basic level. That's as far as the pragmatism. That's as far as the utilitarianism should go. The primary purpose of education is not writing for the sake of writing or adding for the sake of adding. It, it adds to the dimensions of the whole person. It, education, in the same way that an automobile is much more than, number one, rubber or steel or aluminum or leather, those things that make up the body of the car. Obviously, a, a, an automobile is something that is much more important to us uh, than just the sum of its parts, number one. And number two, even when you get to the, even when you put all the parts together, the idea of an automobile is even bigger than simply something that drives us from one place to another. You think about how an, a, a, an, an automobile is more than the sum of its parts physically, and it's more than its utilitarian nature once you have built it uh, on a much higher level. An automobile represents independence, freedom, opportunity to us uh, in ways that vastly transcend the worth of the materials of the car or even the immediate utilitarian purpose of an engine, right? That when you look at the reason that cars matter to people, they are a sense of freedom, independence, opportunity. You can pick up and go. You can get to places you otherwise wouldn't be able to get to. Uh, the, the whole continent literally is at your disposal if you've got some gas money. And so I think of education the same way. Simply teaching kids the basics of reading and writing is the equivalent of putting together the car, right? And then simply saying that an education should provide a student, a person, uh, the ability to have a career, feed their family, that's the second thing. That's the car proper. But what has always made education really meaningful was how it awakens in a, in a human individual, uh, what they are, what they were called to be, what their vocations are, what their avocations are, how the um, rightly understood education touches in us, provides us something that can't be measured either materially or simply philosophically. And so I think that when, when education was at its best, 
when it allowed people to become whatever they were meant to be, whatever they had in them to become, wherever their heart, soul's mind took them, uh, give them the pragmatic skills, give them the basic cultural literacy. Uh, but first and foremost, education sought higher answers to higher questions. It prepared people to live, like you said, the good life. It prepared people to uh, be able to make good moral choices, to recognize that morality really wasn't relative in the way our academics are now arguing, that there is clearly good and bad, better and worse, righter and wronger. Uh, we may never know in our limited state what complete right or complete uh, wickedness is, at least on this earth. However, we can move towards the light and away from the darkness. Um, the universal questions of education uh, are, are what I would consider the highest end things. And we've pretty much thrown that out now. Um, and we're not even working on that second level. We're not even working on the level of car proper. We're really treating children like little more than utilitarian pawns uh, who need to be able to know just enough to be able to do menial tasks to function, to survive. Uh, it's not good. It's destroying the love of education. I mean, nobody in their right mind uh, really loves pragmatism as an educational philosophy. We want pragmatism to be a step along the way, but if we're not engaging these higher order philosophical, spiritual, moral, ethical questions, we're not engaging however you choose to ultimately answer them, and that may include nothing more than materialism, atheism. Those things are all fine if that's what you come to through 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 the wholeness of an educational process. But getting people, I mean, I meet, I meet so many people who believe in things through their education uh, that they have no investment in, that uh, they have never really thought about, that have been handed to them as a script. Uh, they've been fashioned up, in, for lack of a better word, in a politically correct way, uh, but they've never given thought to whether uh, the way they've been fashioned is either politically advantageous or intellectually correct. It becomes like so many other ideologies that seek to close down rather than open up horizons, and that's what bothers me. Absolutely. So I hear you completely. I'm right on the same page with you. So with that as the background, I can go over that list again and see which ones you'd like to take or, or in what order you'd like to begin to address them. I'm flexible. If you've got one you want to just pick out and fire at us, go ahead. I mean, I like uh, it always helps to have a, a, an engaged moderator like you. So if there's uh, something that you see on your list there that piggybacks nicely on what we've just talked about, bring her up. We'll talk about it. Okay. Well, you know, one thing that strikes me immediately is that this whole issue of standardization, and obviously there are fundamental building blocks. People need to know how to read and write and calculate and have some basic kind of logic. So in that sense, I could understand standard the, the utility and value of standardization of testing in relation to those fundamental functions. But then when you get to, to any levels beyond that, um, we start to get into a human individuality in terms of learning styles, interests, uh, primary modes of processing data, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems that once we get to that level, that the standardized tests are at the least very skewed to certain uh, types of people or, or types of ways of focusing and processing information that uh, 
send a meta message to students about what is valued in our world uh, that to me seems really, really dangerous. I agree. Yeah. And I think, you know, Albert Einstein, uh, who clearly had a uh, superior scientific mind, uh, Albert Einstein once made the observation that we standardize cars. We do not standardize children. And I think that's exactly right. Um, it's the non-living, the non-organic, the non you know, emotional, mental, the non-spiritual that we standardize. We standardize, standardize is a way of measuring. It's a way of fine tuning. You don't standardize people. Um, I agree with you that in each individual classroom where you have a teacher, there should be certain standard procedures. In other words, you can't have a classroom where you hold half the class to one standard and the other half to another. Uh, you can't have a uh, classroom, an individualized classroom, where the teacher evaluates grades absolutely differently for all the different kids. That just doesn't work. But once you, but once you get beyond that immediate sense that there has to be some basic starting point uh, that is regular for everybody, once you get past that, and that it happens at a very, very rudimentary stage, uh, anything over and above that, it actually works counterproductive to education. Um, whether you have teachers teaching to tests or kids recognizing that certain knowledge is preferred over others, that certain ways of answering are acceptable, others are not. Uh, once you get past uh, the, the classroom dynamic of how the teacher is going to approach each kid, once you get past that, it's terribly anticlimactic. And now we've reached the point where all of this is being determined at the farthest remove possible from the classroom, the federal government. The only way you could divorce what's happening in the, in the classroom more from the people who are regulating it is if the United Nations at some point were to take over global education, at which point it, then it wouldn't be the federal government of the United States setting these standards. It would be some UN bureaucracy, and that would be worse uh, because it would be bigger, it would be more regularized, it would be dumber. And what happens is, is when you go for any kind of standardization, so I, I believe in standardizing process at the ground level. Uh, the minute you start standardizing outcomes, and that's always what happens, when you move beyond pragmatic standardization, and I just laid out what I thought that was, to any kind of cohesive centralized standardization, it always overshoots the mark and it always ends up lowering standards. Because as I point out in my talks, if you're going to get 320 million school kids to exactly the same place educationally, which is the, what the, the uh, robotic minds of the technocrats want, if you're going to get 320 million kids to exactly the same place, by definition, it has to be a very, very low place because every time you lower standards, you include more people. Every time you raise them, you lose them. And the methodology seems to be at the highest level that we would rather have common education, common core. We would rather have all our kids know the same thing, even if it's very little, than to run the risk that some kids know more than other kids. Uh, but the reality is, is that the human, as human beings, all of us are going to know different things, that my mind can't understand things yours can, and, or certain things that other kids can, any more than uh, I have certain skills and intellectual abilities that other kids won't have. Uh, this is what this is the danger of the utilitarian leveling off of education. Rather than let me be me, and with my particular gifts and skills, even though other kids might not approach them, uh, you're going to punish me because I can do some kids some things better than other kids, and you're going to reward other kids uh, even if they can't do certain. Like I'm a bath for all of my particular gifts. I'm a lousy math student, and so why should high achieving math students be held down? so that I feel better about my weak math skills. Wouldn't it be better 
to let the math kids be the math kids. Give them basic reading and basic you know, history skills, but let them be mathematicians. And let me be an English person. Let me be a reader and a writer. Uh, even though my math may not be the best, I can balance a checkbook. I can function in day-to-day -day life. Uh, so I would rather have an educational system that taps into the tremendous potential in individuals in certain things. Give us a basic education, but let those who excel in certain areas excel that way. We should encourage it. We should reward it. We should uh, challenge kids to find out their niche and to soar rather than these stale arguments that if one kid's better than another kid in a certain subject, that's a social injustice, that somehow the system's not fair. Because uh, what you start doing there is you start treating human beings like machines uh, and not as living, organ, living, breathing, developing organisms. And that's where fascism comes in. Fascist states, and I, I don't care how you, how you define it, uh, fascism, sticklers out there will argue that fascism only applies to certain European countries at a certain time period, nonsense. Uh, I would argue that fascism, you, you could include under fascism, communism, Marxism, socialism, uh, Nazism, uh, statism, right? This idea that uh, states are going to process individuals to be more or less the same creature. I don't care how you call it, it's fascism. It's destroying what is innately um, beautiful, harmonious, and uh, uh, the potential of individuals in the name of some collective organization uh, that stifles and destroys that. Absolutely. So one of the things I'm struck by listening to you talk is that it seems to me that if somebody is seeing clearly and taking their filters off, that what you just said is so obviously valid and useful and workable that it brings up an interesting question. And that is, if that's true, what is it about what a lot of people in this country are being that makes what you're saying either so hard to hear or, and or seems so frightening? Well, I think there's a few reasons. One is bad education breeds this kind of, I'm going to call it what I think it is. Bad education breeds exactly this kind of one-size-fits-all fascist mindset. And so we've been miseducating kids in this country for 50, 60 years now, certainly at least going back to the Department of Education although it began in the late 1970s, although it began before that. We have been educating kids not to be individuals but to be part of a collective. Uh, and that inevitably becomes increasingly tyrannical the more kids come to believe it. And look at your college campuses today, this what, what people call snowflake culture, uh, that these kids, the, co the today's college kid, uh, protests everything they dislike. They don't mind shutting down, violently shutting down uh, the rights of conservative speakers to speak, for instance. They don't mind ripping apart uh, institutions, curriculum, um, canons that they don't like. Uh, they're militant in their rejection of traditional values. And yet, these same radical militant kids who um, will stop just barely short of violence in some circumstances in terms of getting rid of what they don't like, the minute somebody forces them to listen to an idea they don't like, they become shrinking violence, they start sobbing, they demand safe spaces and coloring books, and they, need, they demand somebody protect and reward them. 
for what they have suffered by listening to somebody else. You can't be, this is fascism, you can't be so hypersensitive that you break down like a six-year-old at ideas or concepts that you don't like, and yet you're willing to militantly shut down opposing voices. There's the disconnect. So intellectual, psychologically fragile, that they must, even to the point of violence, silence people who disagree with them. And yet when they are forced to have to listen to ideas they don't like, they, they fall apart like little kids. Um, we've been doing this for 40, 50, 60 years now. And it'll get worse. It's going to get worse. As, so, so we're bringing up generation after generation that feels entitled to be protected from ideas, people, uh, concepts they don't like. Feels entitled uh, yet to be entitled, to be, to be spared from that. Yet when it comes to their own ideas, feel absolute victimhood feel like they've been victimized. That's a dangerous, dangerous combination. And so we've been doing it now, and we're doing it consciously. Uh, you're, in order to divorce kids from the past, in order to divorce kids from moral responsibility, ethical responsibility, you substitute politics for morality. You substitute politics for theology and religion. You substitute politics for critical thinking. So now, the, deep, the most deeply held thing we've given our kids in public schools is politics. That they're good kids if they vote the right way. They're good kids if they hold the right political arguments. They're good kids now if they condemn absolutely people whose politics differ from theirs. So we have substituted you know, 4,000 years in Western culture of critical thinking, of philosophical debate, of you know, uh, uh, experimentation. We've substituted that now. Uh, with narrow, 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 in most cases, very progressive politics. And so we see these kids, the hypocrisy, the, the inability to see their own double standards. These are kids who preach tolerance and diversity above all. That's the gold standard. That's the, the um, sacred cow of political correctness. Tolerance, 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 diversity, diversity, diversity. But look at how quickly these same kids scream down diversity when it's intellectual diversity. Shout down um, diversity, shout down this kind of um, open-mindedness. They're intolerant in defense of their tolerance, right? Anybody who threatens their view of tolerance, they brand them intolerant, and then they are morally obligated to hate them for their intolerance. And that's what you get. I mean, that's the origin of the breakdown of all civilization, I think. Uh, and it's the breakdown, certainly, of, of the free values that Western culture has striven so long to try to propagate. One of the things I like about talking to you about this is that very often people who have the kinds of concerns that you have um, have a reaction that takes them into a not very thoughtful fundamentalism that has its own problems. And so I really like the fact that we're talking in such a way that we can point to a, another possibility that transcends that fundamental dialectic. You know, I think that's a brilliant point and thank you for making it. You know, my kids who come through the public schools and the, the way that we at universities teach them, they, they're fully, fully versed in Christian fundamentalism. They're fully versed in patriotic fundamentalism. They understand, in other words, for lack of a better word, they understand when fundamentalism manifests itself on the right. But they are utterly incapable of recognizing it on the left. So they, they know what an inquisitor is. They know what evan how evangelical Christianity in the past has been intolerant. They get that. 
but they're unable to see it in Islam, for instance, or they're unable to see it. It's like what happens at Ohio State University, to give you an example. You, I don't know if you've been watching the news, but they've been interviewing a lot of Ohio State University kids in the wake of the terrorist attacks there a couple weeks ago. Uh, and these kids are blaming the university. They're blaming the cop who shot the guy who was running around hacking people in pieces. Now, I'm not making a comment on Islam writ large. I'm not doing that. I am simply suggesting uh, that our kids no longer are, are able to see, even when you've got people who claim to represent Islam, uh, when, when they're out there killing, and whether it's in France or whether it's in uh, Fort Hood, Texas, or whether it's in San Bernardino, California, or on the campus of Ohio State University, when people are appropriating the, the religion of Islam to murder, 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 Western kids in universities, they'll point to – Obama does it, right? What did Obama say uh, recently about a breakout on uh, – a, a terrorist attack on Western culture? He said, you Christians, you, uh, you Americans, don't get on your patriotic, patri uh, patriotic religious hobby horses, high horses. Think back to the Crusades, right? And this really cheap false moral equivalency because some group did something bad a thousand years ago. That group is no longer entitled to have an opinion about what's happening in the world today. And so my point, what you said is I think useful. This transcends religion, it transcends politics, it transcends culture. Uh, this, this, on the one hand, our kids are hypersensitive to being triggered or microaggressed by certain particular groups, conservatives, Christians, Republicans, men, right? Hetero, heterosexual people. On the other hand, they are completely unable to see the macroaggressions that are being created on college campuses by people with one universal view of things uh, or other religious traditions or other philosophical or nationalist groups that don't happen to conform to the stereotypes they've been handed. And there we're, we're, we go back to my previous comment. This is the kind of contradiction, right? We, and, you know, to, to quote, you know, to go back and quote Christ for a moment in a non-religious perspective, what he said was exactly right. Uh, why is it you, the definition of hypocrisy, is seeing uh, the, the speck in your brother's eye, but being absolutely unable to see the beam that is in your own eye. And so when young college kids scream tolerance, 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 as they're shutting down people who disagree with them, when young Ohio State University students are blaming the cops or blaming, uh, blaming that particular police officer or blaming the American system of government or blaming the university itself, that one disgruntled student in the name of his religion went about hacking people uh, and then defending the student because, well, he must have been a victim of racism or he must have been mistreated somewhere. That kind of double standard uh, is exactly what they think they're fighting, but they're not. They're actually uh, reifying it. They're actually participating. They're creating the double standard. Uh, that's what always frustrates me. Um, anything that – and it's fun, you said it. It's fundamentalist. Anything that can see the problems with other cultures, other peoples, other races, other religions, uh, but fails to see those problems in themselves, that's the, the seed plot. That's the origin of bigotry, bias, isn't it? Yes, and you know, from one, from one way of looking at it, what you're describing is a very scary, dangerous situation that doesn't allow for the possibility of a free society. Um, you know, I'm thinking, you know, we're recording this in the middle of December of 2016. So one of the things I'm thinking about is that if you extend this trend, you know, kind of asymptotically, it becomes almost absurd, like what we're seeing now with the mainstream media talking about fake news. 
Yeah, I think that's right. Um, fake news. Let's be honest here. The, the and I, Kellyanne Conway, you know Trump's um, surrogate, the the campaign manager. She made a comment that I think is absolutely undeniably true. That if you want to talk about fake news, let's talk about it. But you better be willing to talk about it across the board. Uh, so, for instance, the single greatest example of fake news we had out there was the fake stories that you know Donald Trump was going to lose by double digits; he couldn't win. Turned out to be scientifically implausibly untrue. And so, if we're going to, but what, what fake news now means to many of us, particularly many talking heads in the media, fake news has now come to mean any talking point we progressive media members disagree with. So, all conservative media, all non liberal media, all non liberal voices and perspectives, well, that's all now just lumped in with fake news. In other words, you're back at it again, right? We progressive media members, we know the truth. Anybody who disagrees with us is a fascist, a racist, a bigot, a sexist, a homophobe. And so there you have it again. We, we, we shifted it from the college campus out to the media, and you see it again. And you're right. This is the death of civil discourse. This is the death of – you see what they're trying to do now, right? Just like college campuses are trying to stifle, punish people who espouse views that challenge mainstream progressive orthodoxy on campus, so too now the media wants to shut down um, any alternative views of news, of, of interpretations of cultural events, any news reporting that does not come down with the, uh, the right moral to the story, they want to call that alt-right news. They want to call that fake news. And so I tell my university kids this all the time, and I ask them, look, we are all against censorship, aren't we? So I say, well, look around you, I ask my college kids. Where do you see genuine censorship coming from? When was the last time you encountered a, quote, a religious person uh, or a patriotic person, a person be belonging to some patriotic organization? When was the last time you had somebody like that in your face telling you that you can't say this, you can't do this, you're not allowed to think that way? And they all shake their heads. They can't remember a time where some religious zealot yanked them in, a, in an alleyway or, or cornered them in a grocery store and lectured them about their own sin or weakness. Now I say to them, okay, well, where do you find it? Well, we see it in our classrooms. We see it from our professors. Uh, we see it in our culture, right? Um, Hollywood celebrities saying, you're a bad person. If you think this way, vote this way, buy this brand of corporate uh, product because of who, what their Chick-fil-A, right? If you buy Chick-fil-A sandwich, you're supporting homophobia. Uh, and they, who is it that's banning music? Where are the right-wing voices on your college campuses telling you that this music is, should be – they don't see any? And so then they flip it around. Who's telling you you can't drive a SUV? Who's telling you that you have to uh, change the way you live your life or you're destroying the planet? And so they begin to see really quickly something that I've, I've maintained for a long time now, that, that in American culture, at least at this day and age, in this point in time – uh, the real movement to censor is coming from the people who are blaming everything else to cen on censorship, right? The people who are uh, most dogmatic about their environmentalism, about their racial stance, most dogmatic about their defense of, of support for things like homosexuality, right? I have none of issues I have no particular problem with, but it's people who are defending that. Now, I take one more example. Um, we remember that um, you've got a number of CEOs of companies now since Trump won the election telling their uh, food, Grubhub, for instance, the president of Grubhub, telling his employees, if you voted for Donald Trump, quit the company immediately. I don't want you as part of my team anymore. And that was all pretty unremarkable. Ultimately, that CEO, that president did get fired, but other companies, including Kellogg's now, 
right, is starting to, to starting to discriminate where they will advertise. We won't advertise with people who have an alternative political view than we do anymore. And that's okay. I, I believe that that's your right as an American. If you don't want to do business with a company you think doesn't have the right ideas, if you're a president of a company who thinks he's going to win by firing everybody with different politics, go for it. This is America. But notice on the other side of that, if you're a, a young couple who doesn't want to bake a wedding cake, right, a, a, for a particular group, you're going to get punished and driven out of business. There's your double standard again, right? That we progressives have the right to ban you, censor you, boycott you if you disagree with us. When we do the exact same thing, we should be heralded as heroic for defending our politics and our principles. There's that gap again, right? So think about what we've done. We've moved it from the campus to Hollywood and now to politics, to, to, to the corporate world, right? Well, that, was my, that was my point, that, 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 that this is the, you know, unless we lay some new track, this is where that train is headed. Exactly. And it's always a one-way train, right? Uh, again, it's a dangerous combination when the people who feel that their worldview is so supremely, clearly, undeniably true, uh, the only place for those people to go is to start punishing people, if not hurting them, who, have, who still maintain competing ideas. Uh, this is why we go back 10 minutes ago. This is why I use, I do not use the word fascism lightly, but that behavior has all the tendencies of fascism in it. And it, it's bad, it was bad when it was propagate, uh, propagated by uh, Nazis in the 1930s, and it's bad now when it's being propagated by other people who, who would never in a million years consider that they had anything in common with Nazism. Uh, you know, I think you're absolutely right on. I think it's incredibly dangerous to have a uh, a dominant paradigm that society rewards you for that you've never objectively evaluated. Yeah, I think you're right. And uh, that's it. My, one of the ways I like to describe it as to my university students, you know, I, I, first of all, I asked them, raise your hand if you've ever had to write a paper per, for a professor that you absolutely disagreed with, but you wrote it anyway because you knew you wouldn't get a good grade. Every single hand, every single time goes up. Even my very liberal kids, even my very liberal kids have had to write papers for professors who were even more radical than they were. And so they just lied. They just went along with it because they didn't want their grade docked because of their worldview. And so when I ask them that question, I then follow it up with, right? So, okay, so uh, now that you know, now that you see this happening here, um, what, what do we do about this? How do you handle this? Uh, you're, you have two options. You conform, which is what almost all of them do, uh, or you try to take a stand for something. And it's very difficult to get them to take that kind of a stand. Uh, this dead-end one-way discourse, uh, it, 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 the way I describe it to my university kids is it's like being a guinea pig in a maze. Uh, and you figure out pretty quick as a guinea pig that if you press the right button or you put your nose on the right exit, you're going to get a pellet. What? If you put your sure. nose on, on another pellet, on another uh, you know, door, you're going to get an electro electric shock. So we, we, who gets the pellet on college campuses? It's always the kid who is willing to outdo their professors in terms of conforming to their ideology. Who gets the best recommendations for graduate school? Well, it's that's, always, the most, that's the most dysfunctional take home message of all, yeah. right? Yeah. That, 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 that success comes from selling your soul and playing the game. That's, that's gotta be the ultimate tragedy right there. 
It's completely amoral, isn't it, too? I mean, it's, you're teaching these kids that uh, there's no such thing as a virtue. There's no such thing uh, as truth or being right. There's no, and there is no benefit whatsoever you're teaching these kids to stand up for what you believe in, uh, even when everybody else doesn't. So you're, you really are. Besides the bad politics, uh, you are also really eviscerating uh, value. You're eviscerating virtue. You're eviscerating truth in dangerous ways. And kids, kids remember that more. That, that's what makes me so sad. And my I think, I think that's kids. the, uh, I think that's the ultimate agenda is to disconnect people from their, from their true nature. I agree. Uh, my kids graduate and most of them forget the politics pretty quick, but they never forget that lesson. Yes. Right. It's very cynical, isn't it? It's very nihilistic. That's the lesson so many of our kids are growing up with. If I were teaching uh, a university class or even a high school class that had to do with um, um, the realm of ideas, what I would do is I would have people uh, declare what their biases, what their viewpoint is, and then what I would have them do is I would have them debate by taking, and they would have to take the opposite view. They would have to defend the opposite view uh, in their debate. And I think that would be so incredibly valuable and would teach people so many things on so many levels. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And you, um, you make a really good point that we, we should try as much as possible to, and I do this in my classrooms, um, I make it abundantly clear to my students the, the first day, and I repeat it every single day, that you're free to disagree with anything I say, anything anybody else says. Uh, just because we disagree doesn't mean we're all right, but it does mean that we recognize uh, that there will be no penalty, that if your worldview and mine ultimately conflict, or that if your worldview stands athwart of what everybody else's worldview in the class is, I'm not going to dock you any points for that. I'm not going to take away points from you. I'm not going to punish you for your beliefs. Uh, now, that doesn't mean I won't argue with you. That doesn't mean I don't expect you to argue with me. Uh, and if you start there, I think if you're honest with kids, I've got my perspective. You'll see it over the course of the semester, but challenge it. But expect me to challenge you on yours. I think that's what's healthy uh, when we, we recognize that this is not a zero-sum game of who has the most power because the professor is always going to win that game. Take it away from the professor's power and make it about our equality as thinkers, speakers, writers. Uh, I'll have my worldview, but see, I'm, I'm not threatened when people challenge my worldview in class. Uh, too far too many professors are. And as you know, that's a tremendous sign of weak argumentation. If, if you're bothered to the point of censorship by somebody else's point of view, what that really means is you don't believe all that well what you believe, and you certainly can't defend it well enough. Uh, that kind of insecurity that lashes out is a sign of a bad argument and a bad well, idea. I think it, it points to something deeper than that. I think it's not only points to a weakness intellectually, but it runs much deeper than that to deeper levels of the being because... Um, if you really want to be at peace and be a joyous human being, you have to take responsibility for your own belief systems and grant other people the right to have their own belief systems. And so I think it has an impact way beyond their capacities as um, intellectuals or as debaters. It goes to something 
much more fundamental. Yeah, and we start, if we zip around and start where we began, it's dehumanizing, isn't it? Um, you are basically saying that because I have a PhD, because I've gone to graduate school and you haven't, because I get to assign your grade in this classroom, my opinion means more than yours. My humanity is more evolved than yours. I have the ability from my benighted, enlightened place to shut you up, to make, to either force you to change or shut you up. Again, like so many other aspects of modern education, it's dehumanizing, it's contrary to uh, individuality, it is spiritually destructive, intellectually oppressive, emotionally stunting. Uh, there's no possible way. Uh, it, it, has, it does anything but harm to uh, the, organic human, the, the organic human agent. It destroys all of that. Yeah, it seems like there's just a fundamental either confusion or attempt to obfuscate the reality that um, that free agency uh, in human in human life that the that the unit of free agency is the individual. There's just no way around that. I love what Ayn Rand said, uh, said at one point. Uh, she said, when will people recognize that the, the largest minority in the world is the individual? What does she mean by that? That instead of seeing people, I mean, it, what she meant by that was um, the tendency is, is to want to f identify the minority and then to champion it, I think, or to, to, to recognize the underdog status of being a minority, which is all well and good. Uh, but Rand's point was, is that uh, much more than any individual racial group or religious group or ethnic group or sexuality group, uh, the really the real minority in the world, the one that everybody's forgotten is the individual. Uh, that that I, I am much more a minority because of who I am than I am because I'm part of this or that race. Uh, and I think her point is a good one. That if we, if we, if we insist on seeing people as individuals and not as parts of groups, minority groups, majority groups, if we see people for, first and foremost as individuals, uh, then we're going to have a much more difficult time uh, censoring, discriminating against them, punishing them for being who they are. Uh, look, I'll give you one example of that. Look in the mainstream media. Uh, you know who gets really, it's one thing to be a black male, perhaps in society. It's another thing to be a conservative black male. Notice how when you're a conservative black male or, or, or a, a traditionalist black male, even white men feel they can impugn you, white liberal men. So, you know, I mean, even more telling for us than the, the minority status is the individual status. As, as individuals, we are all radical minorities. And if you want to really do the best for culture and society, then look after the greatest, the greatest majority of all, that greatest minority majority of all, us as individuals, not as parts of groups or faiths or uh, anything like that. If, and it's one of the reasons why I find Christ as a teacher to be really compelling. To me, Christ is... Uh, whatever else he may or may not be, is one of the great, great defenders of the individual, not the collective, the individual. Uh, it was the individual he came to speak to. It was the individual he came to minister to. Um, I know that certainly the history of Christianity has tended to collectivize uh, in dangerous ways, in dangerous at various times. But you go back to his message as a teacher. It was always the individual comes first. And I think that is what Ayn Rand was pointing out. And I think that's what we've our conversation has been about. Um, we 
oh, we, we can only really love people, we can only really teach them, we can only really help them if we treat them first as individuals. And anything less than that, any sense of treating them first as some collective other is going to ultimately do more harm to them than good. So if I'm hearing you right, I'm going to say what I'm hearing so that you can tell me if I got it. So what I'm hearing is the celebration of uh, individual uniqueness as the foundation for all good, including any collective good. Yes, sir. And you think about, and we talked about it in terms of ethics and philosophy and religion with Jesus, but talk about it in terms of na nation states, right? It's why the American, the American, it's what we used to call American exceptionalism before we got bugged by the word, right? Before we saw it as discriminatory, uh, snowflake culture on campus. What made American culture to me exceptional is from the very beginning, from its very origins, it, it as a as a, a constitutional republic, and it, it given the founding documents, uh, the one thing that I keep coming back to in those documents is how individual liberty, the right of the individual to pursue happiness, right, the the rights granted by the Creator to the individual, right, not to, and it's not government's job to grant you rights, right? Government can only protect your rights; it can't give them to you nor can it take them from you, right? The, what I love about the founding of this country for all of its warts uh, and the warts of the founding fathers, what I love about this country was its radical emphasis on individuality and the individual's right to rise or fall on, virt on the virtue of his own uh, chutzpah, his own uh, ingenuity, his own drive and work ethic. I think that's a, that, the more we lose that as a country, uh, the more we see, cease to be uh, a meaningful destination uh, for the, those in the world who most want to be free. You know, I think one of the things that is difficult for some people to see is that if the individual was truly honored, it would be very highly likely that a lot of those individuals would find themselves without any coercion, just out of their own sense of... Uh, vitality and abundance would find themselves um, participating in very charitable acts. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, uh, whether it's on the national level or whether it's the, uh, with the founding of this country or it's on an individualistic theological, whoever you're talking about, right, from Christ to Gandhi to Martin Luther King, the point is, is that uh, we, we, if we deal with people as individuals first, and yet, notice, by the way, how on your college campuses, to be quote-unquote colorblind, to argue that we're all the same under the skin now, to argue that there is something basic human nature that transcends race, class, gender, and politics. Now, if you make those arguments, they're going to call you a bigot. But Why is that? Because uh, if you claim to be... Um, colorblind, uh, you're, unaware, you're unaware of your own privilege if you're white, or you're unaware of your own victimhood if you're not white. If you claim to be that we are all the same under the skin, you are making a, a statement uh, that undercuts race, class, and gender theory. It, okay, so it's a confusion of levels. It's, yes, a log sir. it's a logical confusion of levels. Yes, exactly. It, it, exactly. Would, be, it, would, be like, it would be like denying the fact that your cellular structure, your, the, the, the fundamental elements of, you, of the structure of the cells in your body and in mine are extremely similar. And yet at the same time, at another level, we have a profound uniqueness and the inability to embrace 
both realities simultaneously and not use one to justify the other. That's exactly right. It shows you how deeply the collectivist mindset has seeped in, that we hold on, certainly in progressive circles, we hold on with tribal ferocity to that which separates us. Right? We wear our differences as a badge of honor, right? That I belong to this race, to that tribe. I have these, these are, these, this political party is my party. From, a, from a, 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 the perspective, particularly of progressive thought, um, we, co we collectivize with tribal, tribal ferocity. And so in so doing, we must then correspondingly, we must absolutely repudiate uh, that the other side of things. And so um, it is, it's a, uh, I've always believed that human beings were the rational amphibian. They were, we had one foot on the, in the material world and one foot without it, that we were more than again, to go back to my automobile metaphor analogy, we are more than just the sum of our parts. Right. And, and by the way, if you are, if you do see people, if you do see beyond the externalities of race or gender or class, sexuality, and see the living human creatures standing before you, you are much less likely to discriminate, to collectivize, to censor, to brutalize. Uh, you want to fix much of the world's macro problems. You start with treating people as micro-individuals. I think if we stress that again, and look, the founding fathers did it. Uh, Western culture has striven to do it. Uh, the, 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 the New Testament which is the source of so much art, literature, and culture in Western, in Western culture for the last 2,000 years, it boiled down. Uh, the teachings of Christ boil down, always default to the person, not to the group. Uh, if we see those things as goods and start celebrating them instead of tearing them down, which we are, you don't have to be a Christian to see in Jesus, for instance, or to see in the founding fathers and their worldview. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize, uh, however flawed as individuals the, the founding fathers were, their vision was the right vision. A country where government was small, where the, the rights of, of government to impose its will on you were small, the government worked for us as, as people, as individuals. Uh, that, the, a country where doesn't matter what your skin color, and America has lived up to this, it doesn't matter what your skin color is. Uh, we have rich people and poor people. We have high-ranking, talented people in this country of every racial demographic. Uh, we have uh, our first black president. We've had black secretaries of state. doesn't mean that, it, that all blacks have the same opportunities. All Americans don't always have the same opportunities. But you've seen people from pretty much every single walk of life, gay, straight, atheist, believer, right, have tremendous success. Uh, and so uh, that, there, there's no other country in the history of the world that has done it as well as we have with all of our flaws. And yet the very same people who want to, who claim to, to believe in diversity, they want to tear apart the very worldview that made it possible in the first place. I hear you. It's kind of uh, ego 101. Um, so I think we've done a pretty good job of uh, kind of rubbing our noses in the problem and looking at some of the contexts that might have given rise to some of these limited approaches and results. Um, and I'd like to shift gears now toward how to respond to this. Um, since you brought up Ayn Rand, um, let me use that as a uh, kind of a, 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 a place to start. So, um, you know, obviously, Ayn's vision uh, taps into something pretty fundamental about freedom and individuality. But on the other hand, 
she had her own issues. She had her own unresolved traumas. She had her blind spots. She had her challenges and uh, tended to see things very black and white and didn't really know how to deal with the emotional world very well. And um, so in her opus, Atlas Shrugged, the hero and the, the, all the heroes basically said, this system is too dysfunctional. I'm going to disappear. I'm going to take my marbles. We're going to create this great boundary and we're going to create our own parallel reality. And in her fantasy world, that was the solution. And, uh, you know, obviously in the real world, even if people wanted to do that, there's very few people that could do that. So it brings up a lot of interesting issues about uh, functional systems and boundaries and things like that. But to bring the conversation down to earth, it brings up the question, okay, if we, if we agree that we are, the water we're swimming in is a dysfunctional context that's made up of all these factors and other factors we haven't even gotten into, to what extent do you try to swim upstream with that? To what extent do you just drop out and go off the grid and find other people that want to do the John Galt thing? Do you do some combination of one or the other? It brings up all sorts of interesting questions. So um, kind of with that as another sort of keynote to set the tone, let me turn it back over to you if you want to play off of any of that or just in general start talking about, uh, okay, we've done a pretty good job of defining the current state and we've done a pretty good job of pointing to some of the markers that might represent a more ideal state. And now the question is, um, what do we do? Well, there's absolutely no doubt. You're right that a Ayn Rand carried it way too far. And her, her um, worldview became so isolationist uh, and suspicious in many regards that it's not a workable solution. And, and I would never argue that the pendulum has to – whenever the pendulum swings that far one way or the other, you're going to have problems. Um, I think education is the answer. I mean, if you start where we started with the recognition that human beings are individuals first but not only – uh, and again, I keep using uh, one of my great heroes is, is, is Christ. So I'm going to use him again here in this context. Christ, even though Christ argued for the individual, Christ argued that you must make your choice. You, you have to choose what is good. You have to choose to do the right thing. Um, he never said, and no, none of the great teachers before or since Christ have ever said, uh, in, choosing you, in choosing your individual way, you have a right or an obligation to disconnect or to ignore uh, every other aspect of, of culture, community, family. So, you know, you just can't do that. So uh, I come back to education as the solution. If education starts to build individuals in their unique talents, uh, then one of the ways education helps balance this out is to show how as individuals, we are connected to each other. I think uh, faith can do that, but not everybody believes in, in God. Faith can do it, certainly, and certainly education could and can and should do it uh, to show, to, to value the individual, to let me become who I'm meant to be, to stop blaming me uh, simply on the virtue of the color of my skin for racism, 
or exonerating me uh, from racism uh, simply on the virtue of the color of my skin. Stop uh, blaming me on the virtue of my gender for patriarchy or exonerating me on the virtue of my gender for patriarchy. Stop treating people ethically and morally as groups, not people. If we start with that, you're going to go a long way to the next step, which means real genuine education is critical thinking. And so try to awaken in kids, okay, you are you, but you're also belong to this nation, you belong to this faith or no faith, you belong to uh, this ethnic group, you belong to this socioeconomic background. Uh, what, what, what things do we have in common? What are our responsibilities as individuals uh, to, the, to the identities of others? How do we interact with those things? Education works best when it allows me maximum freedom to be me uh, and then awakens in me questions of how to interact with others. Uh, none of us, like you said, are going to be able to do what Ayn Rand does, Ayn Rand does, and, and live in absolute seclusion. So, um, but you can't put the cart before the horse. If you start with the collective, you blend with fascism. If you start with the individual, you have a much better chance through education, a much better requirement for education then uh, to help to figure out what is the individual's relationship to the, to the state, the individual's relationship to the universe, to the, to the, to the environment, uh, to heaven, to metaphysics, if, if such a thing exists. Uh, you, you start with the individual, let the individual figure out who he, she is, and, and do your best to empower them, and then you can have those discussions. It never works the other way. If you start with kids in the collective, you will never get to those discussions because all the answers will be prefabricated for them. If you start with kids as individuals, all right, then the older they get, the more they come to know and understand themselves, the more you can reasonably have these questions that branch out. Uh, that's what worked certainly for 2,000 years of Western culture, more or less. And if we can get back to that kind of a system, I think you're going to ameliorate much of the problems we see today. So let's segue into you as a person and what you're doing and the school that you've set up. Uh, I'd like to take the time we have left or the bulk of the time we have left to give you a chance to describe and give us as uh, rich a sense as possible of both your journey of creating this school and also um, the nature of it, what it is, how it works, um, what are the responsibilities of the students and the parents and the teachers and, and just leading up to how people can find out more if they want to explore it more deeply. Um, I think uh, we start, let's start with the end of that. And it, to find out more about what Freedom Project Academy is, visit us at fpeusa.org, fpeusa.org. You'll get a much, it's free and no one's going to put you on any mailing list. You'll get a really good sense. You can poke around our website. What we are basically is a, an online complete school, all virtual. We don't use recordings and discs like many online schools do. We actually have real teachers teaching in real time classes that can be beamed right into your living room. So we have real teachers, uh, professional teachers, who do the grading, who do the assignments from kindergarten all the way through high school. Uh, and we are a fully accredited high school, so if you come with us, you get a diploma that's good at all the universities. We've got kid, kids going all over the country now, uh, graduates, uh, getting into good schools, places like Baylor and Hillsdale and all over and over again, all the good colleges. So what we try to do is, we, we, the principles that we've talked about here today, critical thinking, um, teaching kids never what to think, but how to think. Trying to open kids' minds to uh, education that is self-fulfilling. If kids aren't fulfilled by their education, if we're not nurturing and feeding something in a child uh, that takes them where they were meant to go, 
then we're doing we're doing them no service, a tremendous disservice. Then, so our motto is teaching kids how to think, not what to think. Uh, so uh, along the way, we require some courses for kids that are very different than you would find in the public schools. We're very big on logic. We're very big on economics. Kids who don't understand how money works uh, are going to get themselves in all sorts of trouble financially. Kids who don't understand how thinking works are going to get themselves in all sorts of moral and ethical dilemmas, which is why we have logic and economics as part of the curriculum. We don't just teach history, American history. We teach civics. Uh, so much of the problems we now face governmentally and in terms of the electorate come from a, a, a group of kids, uh, young people, who don't know their civic responsibilities. We're, we're really keen on teaching people their rights, but we're not very good on teaching them what they owe the, what they owe the rest of us, the responsibilities. And so uh, civics along with history. So they get an accurate view of history, and they also find out what, uh, what is required of free citizens in a free society. When JFK said, ask not what you can do for your your country can do for you, what you can do for your country, he had the right idea. It's not enough to teach people what government owes them. We must teach people what we owe our communities, our fellow man, what we owe our countries writ large. And so we are big on those things. Um, and we can teach the full curriculum for moms and dads who want to put their kids in full time. That's great. But we also, for that mom and dad who are already homeschooling their kids, who uh, you know, I've done a great job teaching their kids history, reading, and writing, but you know, are a little nervous about how they're going to teach their high school kid chemistry. We we have chemistry courses, so we have a lot of moms and dads who are homeschooling their kids who um, pick us up for chemistry or for physics, calculus courses that may be a little bit beyond them as far as teaching goes. Uh, so what we're trying to do basically is be very uh, cognizant of awakening in the individual a clear-cut sense of what he or she is going to be, what they want to be, what they can be, uh, and giving them information so that when they get off to college beyond what we've done or they enter the workforce beyond what we've done with them, uh, they're going to keep themselves. They won't lose themselves. They will uh, be able to make friends and have families and participate in or groups and organizations, maybe religions, maybe philosophical groups, be able to participate in other things bigger than themselves, but never, ever lose sight of who they are. Uh, that's the mission, and, and you, as you can tell from our long conversation here, uh, that's the, the, you, you've now had a chance to – we've both talked about the philosophy that underpins all that. Uh, so that's our objective, and at fpeusa.org, uh, take a look at our school, Freedom Project Academy. Take a look at all of our books, the books that we teach. Um, they're all available free for you. Uh, you can take a look at what we, we assign in our classrooms, uh, lots of statements of our methodology. And uh, we have a media arm, too, not just a school arm, but a media arm where we're producing educational materials. I do a show. It's called Right Makes Might. Uh, once a week, you can find it uh, on YouTube. You can find it on our Facebook page, uh, kind of a political commentary. Uh, we, we have all sorts of adult education courses, uh, courses geared online for adults. So uh, we, the learning never stops. We just did one on the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. He died 400 years ago in 1616. Uh, we did another one on the history of universities. We've got two coming up in spring, uh, in the, in the, after the new year, starting in January. Uh, one on the medical history. It's on the history of human dissection for 2,000 years. How, when, and why did it happen? And then one on the Peanuts gang, Charlie Brown, Snoopy, and the teaching of faith and philosophy through cartooning. So uh, these are all available for people, adults, to sign up for. Uh, ba basically, you know, to boil it down in a nutshell, we are trying to positively impact the culture through education of all different kinds, uh, through media, through a school, through educational aids, uh, DVDs and CDs, discs. We're trying to impact the culture 
to get back to this idea uh, that a well-rounded culture is one made up of many individuals, e pluribus unum, right, who come together as one, not a group of balkanized people all having our own little tribal politics, but genuine pluralism where we can be radically different as individuals, but come together when necessary to be, to be local communities, to be states, to be nations uh, who have a positive impact on the people around them. How does the uh, community, uh, the student community and the larger community of learners does it just organically form itself, or do you have some structures and processes that facilitate that movement? You know, it, it really is an organic thing. I think it's in our DNA. It's in the way we were made. It's in our, uh, our sociological uh, uh, bent. It's, it's the way that we have been framed as creatures. I think that that kind of stuff happens. If you get out of the way and open the door, it happens. So, for instance, we've got kids in all 50 states, and we've got kids now in uh, 12 foreign countries. And the, the reality is, is that almost none of our kids ever meet face to face. They never uh, bump into each other, but uh, they have these really rich and vibrant educational experiences in the classroom and they become, in many cases, pen pals, email friends, They'll, they chat with each other outside of school. It's a, and so you're not just meeting in the typical public school, for instance, where you're going to meet kids in your same neighborhood. Uh, here you're meeting kids, just not face to face. Uh, physically, I mean, uh, they can get on Skype and see each other, and they'll, they very often do that in their private time. Uh, but we're, we're creating kids who literally are interacting with kids globally. We've got kids in, in, in I guess, in 12 different countries, South America, Asia, Europe, Africa, kids uh, talking to and learning with kids uh, from all over the world. So these, these relationships do, they, they sort of, uh, once you light that fire, you know, it, it just keeps, it keeps uh, burning and, and it smolders all the way through uh, all these different groups. So we, we do have, we don't go out of our way to set up social opportunities for them, but being young garrulous kids who are already sharing an educational experience for so many of our kids, we've got kids who are playing video games together in three different continents now in their spare time. So we think that we're giving them a, really a much broader uh, uh, social interaction, social possibilities than they're likely to get uh, from eight years in class with kids directly from their own neighborhood. Now, one of the things that struck me as I was checking you out there is uh, how affordable all of this is. Like, if my memory serves me, I guess, I don't know if this includes the cost of books, but it's, if I remember, the annual full-time tuition was under $2,000. Yeah, that's right. And so we try to keep it as, as inexpensive as we can. Uh, all the money we raise through tuition goes to pay the teachers because uh, those teachers are giving their time and their effort. So we pay the teachers with that. Uh, we are a 501c3. We, we, the administrative part of this, we survive through donations. Uh, so we're a tax deductible group. If you're looking to, to make some donations, if any of your listeners are looking to donate at all, um, we survive. The, those of us who help keep it together and run it, plan it and uh, oversee it, we survive only on donations. Uh, so part of the uh, – it's a mission work. We really see what we do as missionary work. Um, we try to keep the, the, the tuition as low as possible, and we certainly have tuition assistance too. For moms and dads who think even $2,000 a year for a whole year's worth of schooling is too much, we have all sorts of tuition assistance money. You know, so we can, uh, we can give kids in need, kids from poor backgrounds. Uh, we can even help them on that score too because of the people who donate to us. Uh, so we do see what we do as missionary work, um, and we try to keep the, the costs low. 
Uh, it's not a profiteering school. Uh, it's one that we want to re reach as many kids as we can, as broadly as we can, again, to try to change the culture. So people who have the means, who like what you're doing, they could be a parent, well, they could, or not be a parent, but just for, in this example, they could be a parent and send their kid and they could pay the tuition, the normal tuition, but then they could also contribute to an endowment for people who can't afford it. Yeah, we have a number of moms and dads who have their kids with us and they'll, they'll pay one extra tuition uh, for some other kids. So they'll pay for their three kids and then they'll, they'll contribute the, an equal amount that we'll, we'll use to pay for other kids. And we have a lot of we have a lot of donors, a lot of grandmas and grandpas, a lot of single mom, single people out there who don't have kids at all or don't have kids with us who will kick in some money for tuition, money for scholarships. So, yeah, the more we can get that going, the more people recognize the value of what we're doing. And again, the more donations that we have coming in, the more kids who otherwise wouldn't be able to attend were able to bring on board. So it really is growing. In the five years that we've been active, we've got now over 700 kids. We started with 22, 22 students the first semester five years ago. And uh, now we're over 700, uh, 12 foreign countries, all 50 states. So as long as we can keep growing this, I think um, uh, we'll, we'll make a bigger difference moving forward. Do you think that with um, the, the person that Trump wants for the, uh, for the new education secretary, uh, Ms. DeVos, because of her commitment to freedom of choice in education, and the voucher system, do you think there's a possibility that that might come to pass to the point where that could make it even easier for people? Um, you know, the problem with the choice movement, and I obviously am a big believer in school choice, uh, but the problem with the choice movement is, is that all the voucher and charter schools, all of them take state or federal money. At, at Freedom Project, by the way, we don't. We will never take a – the minute you start taking state and federal money to help educate the kids is the minute the state or the feds is going to tell you, well, we'll give you the money, but you have to follow our program. And so the only way to really be free of this kind of control is to not take that money. All the vouchers and charters do. So Betsy DeVos, uh, uh, Donald Trump's choice for Department of Education, she will be an advocate for school choice. But the problem is – if all the choices are basically just watered down public school choices, if a char the charter or voucher school uh, is, is tied into Common Core, for instance, as most of them are, or forced to take the Common Core test, as all of them are, uh, then what good is it? Uh, choice is good, but if, if it's a choice of location versus a choice of better education, it's not going to help much. So you, don't see, uh, so you don't see a possibility of a world where the voucher could be used on your school? Um, we, as long as that voucher money is state or federal money, we wouldn't take them uh, because, again, as we've already begun to see all across the country, most voucher program, most voucher and charter schools are already being forced to use Common Core curriculum. They're already being forced to take Common Core tests. They're already being conform, being made to conform to the state model of education. Uh, so for us, it, it, I would love to get there. I'd love to get to a point where parents were genuinely free without restraint to use their tax money, the money they're using uh, to pay for public schooling now, to have that money by way of a tax break without any spring, uh, strings attached whatsoever to choose the educational opportunity that's best for their kids. We're a long way from that. Uh, my, my, my succinct answer to, to what Donald Trump is doing, I don't think education will get a lot worse under him, but I don't see much evidence it'll get better. And his pick for the, for the Department of Education suggests that. Um, 
she is a big her, she her Betsy DeVos comes from a Jeb Bush background. She's a on a Jeb on, a, on one of Jeb Bush's committees, Common Core committees. Uh, so I I don't know that we're to fix education. You have to fix how things are being taught. I don't see that that's going to happen. At least, but who knows? Come January twenty uh, sixth or whatever it was, whatever it is when he takes office formally, uh, maybe he will kick it into high gear. We'll see. I have high hopes for him. Hopefully he will. Uh, the pick for Department of Education is better than what we've had before, but I'm not sure it's going to get at the root problems of what's been plaguing education in this country for a long time. So what's happening at your school where there is this charity on on many fronts? I mean, you're not pulling a salary. That's your charity. That's your mission. And then these people that, that give... Um, it sounds like that uh, uh, unstructured model is, at least for the near future, is going to be the way to go. Uh, yeah, I, there are, I think there are uh, – it's not the only way to go. I think you could do education right with a num – there's a number of models you can use that would be much, much better than what we have. Um, I, I do think this, though. Um, the degree to which you take federal or state money – is the degree to which you're on the hook to the feds and the states. And the feds and the states are no longer able to fix this problem. They have uh, for far too long, in the same way the universities are monolithic, uh, state and federal educators have the same monolithic background. Uh, the only way to guarantee a genuinely life-affirming and individual-affirming education for your kids and grandkids is to get them out of that public structure, uh, to homeschool them, to find genuinely safe private schools, uh, or to um, uh, use schools like FPA uh, that are not in any way, shape, or form beholden to state authority or federal authority uh, because those, for far too long now, the state and federal authorities are forcing conformity, not enforcing individuality. The best education will be found, at least in the short term now, moving forward outside of those systems. Well, thank you for enlightening me on that. Um, I really, really have enjoyed and... Uh, feel enriched and empowered by our conversation, Duke, today. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, I want to turn it over to you to, for two things. One is anything you'd like to say in closing, and then please give the contact information again a couple of times, maybe a little more slowly, and then, and then uh, I'll just close it out. Thank you. And uh, no, I think we've had a really great conversation. It's gone on quite a while. Um, I would simply say that um, uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, anytime you want to have us back, glad to do that. And uh, what, if you want to find more information about what we're up to, visit us at FPE, that's Freedom Project Education, FPEUSA.org. And that would be the way to get us. All of it's free and uh, lots of links to great stuff. So fpeusa.org. And thanks again for having me today. Thank you, Duke. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the Cutting Edge Doc. And here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in-depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Duke Pesta, who has allowed me to call him Duke during the interview. And uh, it's been a delight, and it's also been very enlightening for me personally, and I hope it has been the same for you. So with that, until next time, 
we'll close with love and peace. Bye for now. joining us for today's episode of freeing the body freeing the soul to access all episodes including show notes go to cuttingedgedoc.com that's cuttingedgedoc.com lastly if you love today's show you can support dr david his work and the show by going over to itunes and giving a five-star rating and a heartfelt comment Thank you again for joining us today and for your commitment to freeing the body, freeing the soul.